then the lesson we will all start to absorb here, and I mean those of us in the U.S. trying to interpret what's going on, as well as friends and foes around the world, is just pay less attention to what the president's tweeting. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in New York today, and we are joined in Washington by a new guest who I am very, very pleased to welcome to the table, Sharon Weinberger, who is FP's new executive editor for news. She's also the author of a book I highly recommend, The Imagineers of War, The Untold Story of DARPA, the Pentagon agency that changed the world. There's no hyperbole in that title, and it's a great read, so I really encourage you to go out and get it. Also joining us in Washington is Derek Chalet, who's heading up FP's Shadow Government blog with Julie Smith and Colin Call. He's also Executive Vice President and Senior Advisor for Security and Defense Policy at the German Marshall Fund, and is the author also of a very good book, The Long Game, How Obama Defied Washington and Redefined America's Role in the World. Calling in from Palo Alto is Corey Shockey, who doesn't have a book to... Ho- uh, do you want to push a book, Corey? I mean, I could push something. But... Yeah, my... She's got one. Positions coming out from Harvard in September. There you go. So, Harvard, September, Corey Shockey. Remember those things. A research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. As I mentioned in the last podcast, we're going to be making deep state sweatshirts and T-shirts. So start lining up. You get it. Like deep state, like a college, you know. Um, And it's very insider and funny, and only your cool friends will know what it is. If you have any friends, most of our nerd listeners just have us. But... We love you. We'll let you know where you can get them soon. Send your ideas and suggestions to erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, from three tiny podcast studios on the liberal elite coasts of America, we had the following conversation. You know, this week started out, and yesterday morning, there was some tweet, or I saw something from the White House saying that The president had invited the Philippine president, uh, Rodrigo Duterte, to the White House because North Korea. And I thought, this is the craziest thing I have ever heard. And so I tweeted out, this is the craziest thing that I have heard and that we're likely to hear all week. By 24 hours later, every two hours there was something nuttier. The president thought Andrew Jackson could solve the Civil War, which he died 16 years before, and he thought he was the first person ever to ask the question, why was there a Civil War? He said he thought the government should be shut down. Um, You know, it it was just one thing after another. And, you know, even articles that I saw written in the course of this whole thing showed that people in the White House thought the guy had gone off the rails. Corey, you're out there in California where you see everything three hours later. Do you think the guy blew a gasket this week? What's going on? So, David, it's really sweet that you don't see continuity of behavior across the last 100 days, across the last 58 weeks. Because, yeah, that's really not. David, it's really sweet that you're an idiot. Yeah, go on. Yeah, go on. No, I mean, it's you believe in human potential. You're giving him the benefit of the doubt. Because what this looks like to me 
is continuity of erratic behavior on the part of the president. I have to tell you the one that worried me most was, well, I should preface it by saying, I think I see an emergent strategy on the part of the secretaries of state, defense, and the director of national intelligence to- What are they issue- sending out their resumes? <laughs> they, they have taken to issuing written joint statements on important policy issues. And I am guessing they are trying to do this in order to box in the president's erratic behavior or give people context and a policy baseline. And they did that on North Korea last week, emphasizing that our policy was gonna be one of sanctions and negotiations. And within 24 hours, President Trump tweeted that or gave the interview in which he was talking about, we might have a really, really big war with North Korea because it suggests that, you know, the president's not feeling constrained by his policies, by the behavior of his cabinet, by any reasonable boundaries that somebody executing the public trust might consider themselves constrained by. Well, that's interesting. And as the subtext goes, it's vaguely, vaguely encouraging. Sharon, you're there. You're at the reins of probably America's most respected news team at, at FP. And this news is coming in every couple of hours. Do you feel it's unfair to news reporters to have so much that is so crazy so often? Well, I, I think all reporters have had to come to grips with that You know, you fall into the danger of just letting tweets run the news cycle. You know, the the amazing thing, if you look at something like North Korea, is there's actually been a lot of continuity in sort of what the people around Trump have said from very early on in the transition. I mean, if you kind of just peel away the crazy tweets that come out, the idea of redefining how the U.S. would respond to North Korea is consistent, and the crazy tweets are consistent. I don't necessarily know that anyone is trying to box Trump in so much as just sort of ignoring the up and downs of the tweets that go out. Well, that's that's a possibility, although I do really, I mean, on a regular basis, when people say, what is the structure of the national security apparatus of this government, the image that comes to mind is a big elephant with bad hair and orange skin, followed by a bunch of people with brooms. And that's Mattis and McMaster and, you know, and that's kind of how this works. Derek, you're a very sort of level-headed guy. Did yesterday or Monday strike you as aberrant? Or Corey says, this is just the new normal. I think the technical term is batshit crazy. (laughs) Ah, yes. So, Well, I can see that the German Marshall Fund is blazing new trails in policy uh, theory. I mean, you know, on the one hand, I think it was was Douglas Brinkley was quoted in some lesser publication than FP, reflecting the last 24 hours of presidential rhetoric and saying it was almost unprecedented in modern history, just the amount of discordant notes coming out of the president. But on the other hand, there's a lot of continuity with Trump. I mean, what's the difference is Trump just gave has been given a lot of press interviews in the last few days, sort of around the 100-day mark that he wants to also say is meaningless. So there's just been a lot of opportunities for him to get asked difficult questions and also try to just kind of, uh, you know, open his mouth and say different things. So we're seeing just there's just been a lot of content out there, but it's not necessarily new uh, in any way. And um, I think... 
coming, the volume is different because rather than just say something at a signing of an executive order, he's giving these sit-down interviews, in some cases quite lengthy ones. But I think the big challenge for all of us, and I mean, I think this is something we're all collectively working our way through, is how much of this really matters when it comes to policy. I mean, clearly it matters for America's image. It matters for credibility. You know, if you can't take the president at his word, that's a big, big problem. But if if this pattern continues for the next 800 days of what we've seen in the first 100 days, which is a president saying something and then, you know, the day later, his national security advisor saying, well, he didn't really mean that or here it is in context or as Corey suggested, you know, they put out joint written statements clarifying the policy, then the lesson we will all start to absorb here, and I mean those of us in the U.S. trying to interpret what's going on, as well as friends and foes around the world, is just pay less attention to what the president's tweeting. Now, that could be manageable as long as we have relatively steady hands uh, leading the key agencies of, of uh, national security policy. But it's, I mean, that's devastating for the president for the, and the presidency. So it could also drive the president to even more erratic behavior in order to demonstrate his relevance. His relevance. Absolutely. But the question to me, Courtney, is whether, or Corey, whether, is whether he, he, if there's no connective tissue between what he's saying or, or his tweet and what policy actually is, people will learn to dismiss it despite how crazy he gets to try to get attention. Well, let me pick up on, let me, let me pick up on Corey's earlier statement to, tease that out a little bit. Corey talked about patterns and that this has been going on for a while. Well, one pattern that we see here is that the president has reached out to and bent over backwards to be nice to a series of really bad guys, right? I mean, this week alone, he has not only offered a White House visit to Duterte, which, by the way, Duterte said, maybe I'm too busy. Uh, he also said that he'd be honored to meet with Kim Jong-un, who, you know, has done a nice job. And, and even the White House press secretary picked up on that and said, well, yeah, it's tough to take over as a tyrant early on in your life and manage a dictatorship and kill your relatives with anti-aircraft guns. I'm paraphrasing. And he's been nice to Sisi in Egypt, and he's been praising of Erdogan, and he called Putin better than Obama, and on and on and on. So in fact, there are very few patterns in Trump foreign policy such as it is. In fact, I don't often like to call it a policy. But one of the most prominent ones is he embraces authoritarian, tough guys with few or no values, and he regularly takes it upon himself to piss off our allies, whether it's Germany or Canada or Mexico or Australia. And so what about that? What if what if this isn't just random tweeting? What if this is either A, a policy, or B, just a really deeply perverse instinct within the president, Sharon? Yeah, I don't know it's so much policy. I mean, if you go back even to the early statements Trump was making in the campaign about Putin, I mean, people keep looking for, you know, some sort of conspiracy between Trump and Russia. And, and you know, maybe there's that's there and they'll find something. But what if it's just sort of a natural affinity towards r rulers like that? I don't think that human rights is really high on Trump's agenda. I think he has a lot of natural affinity for Russian oligarchs and their sort of way of taking care of business. And I think you're seeing that not just with Vladimir Putin, but with his approach to other leaders as well. 
Well, there's that. There's also an interesting connection. Trump has business dealings in Russia, Turkey, and the Philippines. That doesn't come up as often as it used to. Are we just getting used to all of this stuff, Corey? <laughs> uh, I think we are getting used to it. But I have a slightly different take on the president's disgraceful support for authoritarians and disinterest in human rights, which is that this is what a realist foreign policy looks like right? This is values-neutral American foreign policy that Stephen Walt and others advocate and that all of us feared the Obama administration was practicing. I find myself somewhat nostalgic for the days of complaints that President Obama was uncharitable to our friends but helping our adversaries, you know, more interested in our adversaries than our friends. There's a continuity between the two administrations, but President Obama was actually better on human rights. So I feel like all of the angry foreign policy columns by the realist crowd suggesting that President Obama is not a realist, this doesn't invalidate those, but it suggests President Trump is even more of a realist in foreign policy. That Henry Kissinger must be delighting in this, that, right, Sisi's a strong man, someone we can do business with, and no acknowledgement that the way he is governing Egypt is actually incurring much greater long-term risks to us. You know, Derek, to give you a sense of what a nerd I am, and, and, and we've known each other long enough that I don't know that you need more of a sense of this, but, but to give you a sense of what a nerd I am, I'm like, oh, great, realist bashing. I love realist bashing. Because I like you know any group that goes around calling themselves realists so that if anybody else criticizes them, that immediately makes them unrealistic. I got no time for them. But there's a problem with this, this critique of Corey's. And, and I think that is that, well, yes, realists might embrace people who we don't agree with on a lot of things. They do it with a purpose, which is to advance U.S. national interests. And I'm not so sure that Trump meets the second criteria of being a realist, which is actually doing it with a purpose. So I agree with you, David. I mean, I think that it's probably it's giving him too much credit to think that he's following the wise counsel of Steve Walt. I think that what comes across, I mean, it's actually a legitimate issue to, to raise how to engage with the North Korean regime, whether you put out on the table a possible meeting between a U.S. president and a North Korean leader. I mean, that, that's a legitimate issue you can debate the merits of. But it, it's not just that he he said he would be willing to do it. it. It's he put a little spin on it by saying he'd be honored to do it. Of course he would. And it, yeah. it, it kind of suggests that there is regardless of what he's actually, if there's a strategy behind it or not, it, it suggests that he instinctively kind of has some familiarity with this kind of leader, that there's this level of respect. You know, look, this guy was a young guy and look at how he consolidated power. And, uh, you know, there's something admirable in that. And, it, you know, obviously, as you noted, David, it goes back to every, not just the campaign, but before he was even running for president, just this this affinity he has talked about for these kinds of leaders, it's a certain kind of strength. It's a certain sense of what it means to be powerful and influential and to be a man. And it's very consistent uh, with Trump. And so it shouldn't really be surprising. It can be disappointing, but it shouldn't be surprising that these are the leaders that he tends to gravitate towards. Now, again, whether this actually means that there's going to be a radical change in a policy toward 
Egypt or towards Russia or towards North Korea. We've yet to see that, actually. But certainly in, the mood music has changed. So I agree with I I agree with the the reclama both David and Derek raised, but it I do actually think there's a policy change. I think the administration has made a choice not to criticize in public authoritarians. They are at least claiming that in private they are working deals like the release of the Egyptian American human rights advocate. What they are claiming is the previous policy of criticizing these countries in public didn't produce results. We're going to be respectful in public and hope that in private we can actually make more progress. I think the jury's still out. I don't care for it as a policy, but but I do think it does actually portend a change of policy. You know, I have I remember these old Saturday Night Live routines, and I, I don't remember the president was it George W. Bush or Reagan or somebody, but you know they would behave like an idiot, and then the camera would go off, and and then he would turn into a master strategist. And you know, I have this kind of image of Trump sounding like a complete maniac, and then the camera goes off, and he pulls off the ridiculous orange wig, and he puts on a <laughs> pair of spectacles, and he goes, I'm planning to triangulate between Walt and Mearsheimer and Joe Nye's soft power thesis, and I'm good. But no, I don't think it's that. I actually think that although America came as close as it ever has to having a woman president, the person who headed that off at the pass is actually the first president of the United States to suffer from a debilitating case of penis envy. And that <laughs> he just, anything that he can do to make himself look more manly and powerful, he's drawn to. And that's the criteria underlying it all. Sharon, am I oversimplifying this? Yeah, I, I don't think uh, that. I think what you see in front of the camera is the same as when the camera's off, although I love the idea that there really is this sort of grand strategist alter ego. I, I sadly don't think that exists. I think the problem is, is that there isn't a... I, I, I don't even give credence to the idea that, that they've made this decision not to criticize in public. I don't know that there is a grand strategy. I think the people around Trump, I mean, they sort of fashion themselves as sort of a, a you know, George Kennan for the new era. I think they like the idea that they have some new grand strategy, but there's no mastery of the details behind it that would enable a grand strategy. So, I, you know, it's sort of fun to think, yes, they're upending all the rules of diplomacy. They're throwing out all these old ideas to see if you can redefine, for example, the relationship with North Korea. But if you don't know the details, if you don't care about the details, I don't know how you can come up with a strategy. So, yeah, breaking the rules is fun if you have something better to replace it with. Well, you know, I mean, I wonder who those people are. I mean, the mastermind of the Trump administration, Sebastian Gorka, seems headed off for a job in the Park Service or something dealing with raccoons. But, I mean, he's he's headed out. Uh, Bannon has been demoted. McMaster was used as a prop yesterday or the day before in some photo where he's in uniform. No, no, it was a, it was a commercial. They did an ad. And they used a guy in uniform. Corey, I'm just going to stop here before I get on to the next point. I know this really winds you up for good reason. But in the course of a couple of days, the president seems to be using the uniform military as a political prop. Yes, David, it does spool me through the ceiling. If any of our devoted ER nerd listeners missed it, the president was handing out the commander in chief's athletic trophy 
to Air Force Academy cadets for their sports achievement. And in the Rose Garden at the White House, proceeded to give a very strident and partisan set of comments about the need for the border wall, bashing Democrats, suggesting that maybe the government needs to be shut down, and then turns to these young, soon-to-be Air Force officers and says, well, of course, all of you agree with me. So it's bad enough that he made the comments in their presence, right? This is not the first time he's done this. And it's terrible for the military to have elected political leaders associate them with partisan political activity. It will make the American public consider our military uh, politically partisan. And that will be a really bad thing for our country. It will make our country less safe and it will make our military seem like a normal political actor. But the president did even worse than that, which is by suggesting that they're participants in this politicized undertaking rather than just a backdrop. And that makes them seem complicit in what he's doing. And that's just terrible. It's like the president signing the executive order banning immigration at the Pentagon. I wish the Secretary well, look, I, of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff would police this much more carefully. Well, that, you know, this is an interesting issue, and I, I, there's one other thing I want to get into. But, but all three of you have perspectives on this that I'd like to think about a little bit. Surely, if you're a professional military officer at this point, the behavior of this White House has got to be a little bit disturbing. Um, it's not just that they launch a missile strike on Syria without a plan. It's that this week the Secretary of Commerce decides to characterize that missile strike as after-dinner entertainment at Mar-a-Lago, which cost the president nothing. It was disgraceful. You know, the, the 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 president seems to be embracing bad guys. He's using the military as props. Derek, you worked in the Pentagon. And I'm going to turn to Sharon and Corey because you know so many people who are in the national security community. Is this starting to stir up concerns on the part of the career people? Well, look, I think there are concerns among the career people. They don't like this. They, you know, doesn't what Corey just described that uh, happened recently with the commander in chief trophy presentation becoming a political rally is not something that the Joint Chiefs would look uh, kindly upon. That said, I think on balance, they're still reserving judgment, hoping for the best, taking taking what they can get, appreciative of uh, the greater autonomy and decision-making authority they have. So, you know, focus on the things they can be happy about, a bigger budget, uh, more freedom of maneuver in terms of military operations, uh, solid leadership at the Pentagon, solid national security advisor. And, you know, they're they're just going to kind of uh, swallow hard and just kind of let this other, other stuff that's kind of more theatrical just slide off. But I think that over time, I mean, Corey's absolutely right on the damage this this does. And again, this is not surprising. This is this is right out of the playbook of the president who held a pep rally at the CIA on his first day in office, right? I mean, this is uh, nothing surprising about the way he's operating. He's not changing, right? Despite the desire for many people in Washington to see 
show how the office is changing the president. I see very little evidence of that. But I think the career folks for now are just hanging on to what what they think is positive about the administration, whether it's continuity or whether it's the greater freedom to make the decisions they feel like they want the authority to make. Well, that's that's encouraging. And certainly there have been some really profound changes on that, that in the midst of all the chaos and hubbub, haven't gotten a lot of discussions. So, for example, I seem to recall reading a few days ago that the president has shifted the burden of responsibility to determine troop levels out of the White House to to the Pentagon, to the Secretary of Defense. That seems like a kind of big deal to me, Sharon, and yet under the radar effectively in the course of this conversation. Yeah, I mean, it is a big deal, but it's also a continuation of what you've seen under this sort of very brief administration, which is a devolution of authorities over to the Pentagon. Because there are so few political appointees in other agencies, but as well at the Pentagon, I mean, it's, it's you know, the Pentagon is a pretty, has a durable bureaucracy and enduring institutions. And so I think after sort of the initial shock and sort of the continuing shocks of things like, you know, talking to the Air Force cadets, you know, the Pentagon is going to kind of move on. It's going to be what are the long-term effects of, for instance, of the Pentagon having more control in some areas that the White House isn't interested in? What are the long-term effects of not having political appointees there carrying out administration policy? Corey? I agree with Derek's assessment that what I think I see the administration doing is devolving a lot of authority for making operational and tactical decisions back to the Pentagon. And in my judgment, that's a good thing, but it's only a good thing in the context of elected civilian leaders determining a strategy and policing consistency of those of those operational and tactical decisions. I think the people, you know, H.R. McMaster and Jim Mattis are, and, and Joe Dunford are well situated to do that, but it's not clear that there's a strategy in place that these are consistent with. And I do think that's potentially mm. worrisome. Moreover, it's worrisome for civil-military relations because as President Trump demonstrated after the raid in Yemen, that the president won't give them top cover when things don't go well. And that's important for the American military and for civil military relations. Yeah, I just I, I totally agree with Corey there. I think where this is going to come a cropper is when something goes wrong, I doubt that the president will be as magnanimous in sharing accountability for the things that go wrong than the things that have gone right. And I think that his generals, and remember he talks about them as his generals, uh, will be thrown under the bus if something were to go wrong and he'll try to deflect blame. Almost certainly the case. So let me shift here for the last part of this podcast and enter a zone that we haven't been in very often here, which which is a Trump-free zone. I'd like to spend the next 15 or so minutes talking about foreign policy without ever invoking the name of the president of the United States. And the reason I want to do that is this. I think we've all sort of made the case that there is either an incoherence in U.S. foreign policy or a pullback that's deliberate in U.S. foreign policy or a variety of other characterizations that tend to suggest that there are in many places in the world voids being created by 
either the absence of a clear U.S. foreign policy or a deliberate decision not to be involved there. And every void is an opportunity for somebody. And I'd just like a report from those of you who are sort of examining the world on who you think is stepping up and who are the people who are likely to take advantage of this era of the next several years where perhaps shifts in U.S. policy may create opportunities for leaders internationally. Nominations are now being accepted. I have a positive nomination to offer, which is America's Asian Allies, by which, in which I include both Canada and Mexico, agreeing to move forward on the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, even without the U.S. I think the trade agenda is really important, and they understand that keeping it moving is good for prosperity and good for security. And if we're not going to be part of it, they're, the Japanese were first to decide, the Australians decided, the Can Canadians decided, the Mexicans decided to go ahead without us. And that shows some real leadership, I think. Derek? I agree with Corey. I'm, I'm agreeing with Corey a lot today. This is a good day. <laughs> but I, and I think on the positive side, uh, I just want to footstop the, the Canada angle, which I think it's it's interesting, even if you look at it from an area of the world, I think a lot about transatlantic security, US and Europe. Canada has been stepping up more and more militarily. Obviously, they, they're, they're blessed right now with a leader who is widely admired in the world and I think is one of the handful of, of, of leaders that folks have a lot of confidence in. Uh, you know, actually, and he's got really good hair. He's, he's a good dresser, too. Um, but seriously, I mean, he's someone who seems to be comfortable with the role and who is willing to fill it. Uh, and, and, you know, if, if we're sort of thinking through the next few years of global politics, uh, I would expect we're going to be seeing more and more from the prime minister of Canada. On the negative side, and this is an obvious one, of course, China, I mean, whether I think most or uh, most prominently starting with the president, President Xi's Davos speech has made it clear that they are more than happy to to fill the void on particularly on key issues like climate change and clean energy. I mean, it's a start. It's notable for me thinking back to the first year Obama administration where, you know, it was took every effort to try to convince the Chinese that our interest in working with them on climate change was not some plot to try to undermine their economic growth to now they are uh, positioning themselves as the global champions of climate change and the clean er, climate change and the clean energy revolution. And uh, that seems to be uh, purposely uh, poised against what they perceive as uh, a shift in the U.S. position on those issues. Although I do think, you know, I just think it's worth flagging momentarily a bit of enduring American hypocrisy in that we are the great champions of democracy, at least we used to be, in the world. Um, but when the majority populations of the planet get themselves in a position to play a bigger role in determining its future, we're always outraged by it. So, you know, it is the most populous country in the world. You know, we may not love what they're doing or how they're doing it, but... I, it, it it does seem vaguely appropriate that they play a bigger role than they have been in the past. Uh, look, I, I agree with that. I mean, I'm not outraged by their willingness to – I mean, it's a good thing for all of us that China believes in developing clean energy. Uh, I just think it's important to realize it's not just because of their, you know, their, their positive spirit and desire to, to see the world change in a positive way. It's also a perceived opportunity for them uh, to gain advantage relative to us. Sharon, uh, another uh, nominee for an opportunist to watch? 
I'm unoriginal. I, I mean, I think if you look at Canada's response, for instance, to the initial immigration ban, I mean, that's sort of the obvious candidate. So I'm, I'm more or less in agreement here. It's interesting that none of you guys have mentioned Vladimir Putin. <laughs> well, I think his fortunes are uncertain at this point, right? Like the Trump administration was going to be a big victory for him because there were there were so many Putin partisans close to the president and the president himself was at least an apologist and possibly more. They certainly will have a lot more running room, but you know, the secretary of defense was quick to say that there wasn't room for greater military cooperation with the Russians. The secretary of state seemed genuinely outraged by Russian participation in Syria's chemical strike. I, I think relations are souring. It's not at all clear to me that this is going to be a pickup for, that the pickup opportunities for Putin will be anywhere near what they are for China or other countries. What about regional players? You know, I mean, if the U.S. sort of pulls back a little bit, there are players who might flex their muscles regionally. It could be Iran. It could be Saudi Arabia. It could be the Russians in the Middle East. There, there could be other regional players. Are there, there are other people we should be watching for there? I think the opportunities in the Middle East are not going to be for Iran, which it looks to me like the Trump administration is well on its way to we try— got, we, but By the way, we got eight minutes without mentioning that name, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, doggone it. Um <laughs> Uh, sorry for being the most egregious violator. Um, I think an anti-Iran strategy is coalescing. I think the opportunities in the Middle East will be for authoritarian or semi-authoritarian governments that are going to get a pass on things they haven't gotten a pass on, which is domestic governance and human rights issues. And they will get a pass from this administration. Yeah. And David, I, I think that you know, some of it has to do with the in, the sort of inherent weaknesses in some of the possible competitors. I mean, if you think back to the BRICS, right, no one really talks much about the BRICS anymore as a coherent unit. Obviously, China still matters. Russia can still be a disruptor. Brazil's in a bad place. South Africa's in a tough place. Um, and uh, India is the fastest in, growing major economy India, in the world. So will soon be bigger India, than China. And India is an interesting one where India is, of course, a country where uh, you know, it's one of the rare bipartisan projects that had been successful over the last several uh, decades, really. And it's a country that the U.S., President Bush, President Obama, and as far as I know, uh, the current administration uh, believes that drawing India out, having it be more of a, of a player in global politics is something that is in our interest. We haven't yet seen much of a policy toward India articulated uh, at this point, but that's, I think, an opportunity. Another country that hasn't been mentioned but clearly is – is struggling to sort out its own role uh, in this new world order uh, is Germany. And Germany, of course, has a critical election coming up. Uh, it's going to be the major player in the, the debate about the future of the EU. But of course, it, it struggles with uh, how to define its leadership, uh, how ambitious it should be when it comes to deploying its power around the world. And it, it's, I mean, Next to, next to Trudeau, I think Merkel clearly is is the dominant global player. But uh, that's going to be a big question we'll all have to watch is how comfortable will Germany be filling this perceived void that's being left? Setting aside for a moment the Merkel versus Trudeau argument, because I would think that I personally view that Merkel is significantly much more 
Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Let me end this particular episode of the podcast with a a big question. It may be one that some people find a little bit inflammatory, but, you know, it looks pretty clearly like the last president of the United States and the current president of the United States are very, very different people, different in almost every respect that you can imagine. And the current president seems bent on reversing the policies of the last president. And yet, there was a critique of the last president that he was overly cautious, overreacting to George W. Bush, uh, not forward-leaning in terms of his international engagement, and that as a consequence, America's influence diminished somewhat. And there's a critique of the current president that for completely different reasons, America's influence is also diminishing. And I wonder if this isn't the pattern in countries that are in decline, that Different people can try different things, but the net-net consequence ends up being the same thing. Derek. So, obviously, I take issue with that. I mean, I think that that there's no question that in 2008, the United States was in decline, uh, whether we looked at our position in the world or, or the situation here at home in terms of the economic collapse. So, the question that President Obama faced was, how do we arrest the decline and then position the United States in a way to sustain our power and to ensure that we can use our unique capabilities and our exceptionalism uh, to bring the world together to try to solve common problems and to uh, sustain our leadership. Um, I would argue, and historians will debate this for many years to come, that we were in a better position in January 2009 than we were, or January 2017 than we were in January 2009. And uh, not only will historians debate this, people on this podcast will. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, I think of us as sort of amateur historians. Um, and uh, you know, Corey mentioned earlier, you know, nostalgia uh, for Obama, and I I assert that that nostalgia will will settle in. Uh, it happens to every president, but I think it will happen uh, quite significantly with Obama. So, you know, it seems to me that the world is changing. There's no denying that. I mean, this it's a different world than it was, uh, you know, at, at the height of the Cold War, which we all sort of oddly nostalgically remember as simple times in which the United States was dominant and could decide everything, this kind of mythology that there was once an era where the U.S. Uh, could do all this doesn't really seem to to sort of equate with history. Um, But it seems to me that uh, in terms of when it comes to managing global change and when it comes to positioning the United States to sustain its leadership and to assert its leadership, uh, there is a way to do it. I would argue that that Obama showed the way to do it. Not not perfectly, uh, not without mistakes, not without things that folks would have done over um, or do differently. But, and we may only really, you know, uh, realize how much we miss it once it's gone. And it may be gone if we see another few years like the last 100 days. Sharon? Yeah, I suppose that's the sad part, that what if it just doesn't make a difference? If you look at the difference between the administrations and the approach, whether it's the Islamic State, whether it's policy on Yemen, whether it's Afghanistan, um, what if it doesn't matter and the continuity is just that it's getting worse? That's what I see. Okay, Corey, this is your chance to refute Derek's assertion. (laughs) not what I see. I actually think the Trump administration does have a different strategy and is likely to win the Iraq war that was nearly won in 2008. 
or excuse me, in 2010, when the Obama administration wrote it off. This administration is anti-trade. The Obama administration was anti-trade in 2008 as well, President Obama having campaigned on renegotiating NAFTA. So it's early days. The administration may get better. The Obama administration in 2008 was no great shakes. I agree that they got a lot better over time. To the extent that there is policy continuity, you know, I think policy continuity in the age of Trump should be one of our lesser concerns, given the likelihood of erratically bad divergences from longstanding American policies like support for the spread of de democratic institutions and elections. So, so there's a lot of potential for bad, but I am not nostalgic for the Obama administration to the extent that it sounds like others are. Well, I'm not surprised by any of these views. And uh, I think the difference in these perspectives is exactly why we have these discussions here on this podcast, because the issues remain uh, unresolved. But I do think there is a question that lingers in the air, and that is whether conflicting influences within the U.S. political system lead to a similar place in terms of America's influence in the world. That's for historians to discuss in the future, but we'll probably visit it again on future episodes of this podcast. For now, thank you, Corey. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Derek. And come back in a couple of days because there'll be more of this conversation. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, and I have been your host. Uh, the program is produced by Maria Ori with the assistance of Alex Dorr. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for joining us.